She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode 10, The Wild and the Innocent. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, January 10th, 1997 at 9 p.m. In between this and last week's episode... Fox aired a repeat of 522-666 on Sunday, January 5th at 9 p.m. instead of the X-Files. Whoa, that means there was no X-Files that week at all. Yeah, they're probably trying to get people into this show. They're like, hey, we have this other show that you should check out. Uh, we don't know what that's like. No. In this episode... After a license plate is run following the death of a state trooper, a rapist and murderer that Frank Black pursued five years ago is discovered to be the owner, but he's using a different name in another part of the country. Frank and Peter Watts assist the state police in locating him, but begin to think he had nothing to do with that crime, but was involved in others that could result in even more deaths. It was written by Jorge Zamacona and directed by Thomas J. Wright. This is the second of Zamacona's writing credits on Millennium. The first was episode six, Kingdom Come. This is the second of Wright's 26 directorial credits on Millennium. His prior episode was episode three, Dead Letters. Thunder cracks. We see a procession of cars approaching from the distance on a lonely two-lane road in what looks like the middle of nowhere. We hear a woman's voiceover. Sometimes I feel time slip like a heartbeat, dear angel. And I wonder if you feel it too, across the distance. To have known you for so brief a time. To live with the possibility that we shall never meet again. Joplin, Missouri. Small funeral in the rain. The priest recitation tells us the service is for Colleen Marie Haskell. A selfless friend and loving mother. Her life was hard, but it was her own. She did not surrender to sadness or hardship. She surrendered to the fatigue that comes with being a good person. She found no peace in this world, and we pray that the Lord helps her find some in his. A young woman, Maddie Haskell, likely the deceased daughter, is crying, holding flowers, but she sees a rough-looking man among the mourners and stares at him with what looks like disgust. She tosses the flowers onto the coffin, and it is lowered. The man continues to stare at her, and she at him. Later that night, Maddie is brushing her hair in her bedroom. The man enters, grabs her, and throws her onto the bed. She protests and tries to fight him off. He says, there's no one but me and you now, and tears at her clothing as she continues to try to fight him off. Someone else enters the room, carrying a small club or something. It's in shadow. We can't really tell. He grabs the would-be rapist who turns to face him just in time to be struck. He falls from the bed. What appears to be a body wrapped in a sheet is rolled into a car trunk. Bobby Weber, the young man who had the bludgeon, closes the trunk. He and Maddie drive the car through the rainy night. She is crying. This isn't what they talked about. They were just supposed to make him tell them where he is. Red and blue lights appear behind them, and a short siren gives a signal to pull over. 
So they do. A state trooper approaches and Bobby rolls down the window. They were pulled over because of a burned out taillight. Bobby says he got a fix it ticket for it last week, but he's waiting on payday to get it fixed. The trooper asks for his license. Bobby goes to get it, but we see he also has a gun. Suddenly there's a muffled shout and a thumping from the trunk. The trooper is like, what the hell is that? And stands and turns. Maddie watches as Bobby shoots the trooper who falls backward onto the wet road. The voiceover returns as we see Bobby set down the smoking gun and Maddie cries. If you are indeed lost to me, it is my Lord's prayer that you are not lost to him, dear angel, that you walk in the light, that you forgive, and that you never have to know the truth. And then we get our main titles. Maddie Haskell is played by Heather McComb, who played Shannon Osbury in X-Files Season 2, Episode 14, The Hand Diverlets. Bobby Weber is played by Jeffrey Donovan. He is currently starring as Detective Frank Cosgrove in Season 21 of Law and Order. Oof. Yeah, he also played Michael Weston in Burn Notice. That's the main character, the guy who got burned, and that's what the show is about. So that's where um, I knew him from. He looked so familiar to me. I never really watched Burn Notice, but it was on at the same time as like Psych and Monk. And so he was always in all those promos and you would just see him. And my brother liked that show too. So I definitely, that's where I saw his face and knew his face. Okay. Sergeant Mike Cosgrove is from Freakazoid and was voiced by Ed Asner. It has almost been a year and rest in peace. Yeah, he's missed. The would-be rapist who will remain unnamed for now is played by John Piper Ferguson, who played Paul in X-Files Season 2, Episode 21, F. Masculata. He'll be in two more episodes of the X-Files in Season 5, possibly not as a bad guy. Haven't seen those yet, but find out. And in one more episode of Millennium in Season 2, which breaks our going from season one to season three trend for people who show up and then disappear and then come back. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So he's going to be in season two, not in season three. Not in season two. Just in season <laughs> two. I'm not going to lie. The voiceover gave me some, the field where I died traumatic flashbacks when I first heard it. In the episode. <laughs> I kind of assumed the voice was supposed to be Maddie's mother. Oh, but we will learn it is Maddie. Mm-hmm. Her accent is not great. If this episode had been written by Glenn Morgan, I would have bet real money that it was Kristen Cloak in an uncredited role. So, because, yeah, I just, whew, I was just, whoa, no, no. So. <laughs> I know. Well, I don't mind voiceovers, but this one is a little. It's the accent. It's the accent. It's what well, it is. It's yeah. The accent. It's the yeah. accent. That might yeah. be it. Yeah, I really hope when Kristen Cloak becomes a recurring character on Millennium later that she does not need an accent. I don't know what her... <laughs> yeah, I just... Whew, that accent was... <sighs> so we're pretty sure there's probably commercials after the main title, I think, is what we've come down on. I'm not really sure. Uh, but then, of course, when we come back in Millennium, ever since episode two, we get an epigraph. This one is, Oh Lord, if there is a Lord, Save my soul if I have a soul. And it is attributed to Ernest Renan. It is actually translated from Francais, which Yay. is when it was originally written. Tori, you want to give us a reading of sure. the Sure. I've been working French? on my accent. It's still bad, but I'm feeling more okay. confident in my French now. Okay. At you least. can give the French and then I'll do the English, which I kind well. of already did already, but yeah. Prière d'une septique. And then the quote is, Oh, Seigneur, Celia, un Seigneur. 
Save moi ame, si j'ai un ame. And that is from a skeptic's prayer. Oh Lord, if there is a Lord, save my soul if I have a soul. So this is entitled the skeptic prayer. That's what it is. I tried to find out where it was originally from because he has several books, all in French, obviously. I could not find it. took me forever just to find out this is actually from the skeptic's prayer. Like everyone quotes it. No one attributes it. Or if they do attribute it, they attribute it to him, but like don't give any context. I was able to find this. It's called the skeptic's prayer. I found the original French, but I could not find anything that it was originally published in. So I found it listed in the bibliography, but I don't know if it was just something he did and was like, it was a standalone. I doubt that, but I could not find any of his writings that this maybe would have first appeared in. Huh. So. Interesting. I don't know if there's a French Google. I tried typing in English. <laughs> I tried typing in. I mean, eventually I just started typing everything in French. So I'm like, it's going to come up in French. And that's where I actually found the other stuff. So, but yeah, I could not find out where this actually came from, but it's, huh. it's pretty much, they, they, they added like double dash at the end and then the quotation marks didn't have that. It's a period. I don't know why you can just put a period. Like it keeps going. It stops. That's it. But whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's a sunny morning outside the yellow house and Jordan is crawling along the floor in her pajamas. She enters her parents' bedroom. Frank is still on the bed and he is reading the Seattle times and pretends not to see her. She leaps up on the bed and she roars and he feigns surprise and he's like, oh no, I'm being attacked by a tiger. And they laugh and she's like, I'm not a tiger. I'm a lion. And he asks if she wants to play again. And she does, but this time she wants to be a bear. And he says, as long as she doesn't scare him. So it's cute. Catherine enters with two cups of coffee and she's like, oh, what's going on here? And Frank says there are wild animals in the house. And then Jordan asks if they're going to have another baby. And they're both like, uh, and Jordan's like, I want a baby. <laughs> and then yeah, <laughs> their reaction's pretty good. They're like, oh, I don't know. We want another baby. They don't say that. And she's like, families have lots of kids. And Frank says, well, you know, some families have one. Some have more. They're all still families. And then Jordan's like, can I have a sister? And they look at each other. So, <laughs> yeah, Frank looks like he might, he's got a little twinkle in his eye. He might be like, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> so, I don't know. But, but then the phone rings and Catherine says she hopes it's for her and she's smiling. And so Frank wrestles with Jordan and Catherine picks up the phone and says hello. And a voice says, Frank, please, because that's who calls their house. So it was for Frank. Sorry, Catherine. It was for Frank. So down in the basement, Frank tells Jordan to hang up the upstairs phone. He's got it. I'm not sure why Jordan has the phone, why Catherine didn't have the phone, but. <laughs> Maybe Catherine had to go get some something off the stove or some laundry or something. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> yep. Anyway, so we assume Jordan hangs up and then Peter Watts asks Frank if he's online. Frank turns on his computer and we see, I believe this is the first time we've seen this. There's a log on screen that has a big old MG on it for Millennium Group, we assume. And it reads, welcome, Frank Black, starting up. And it's got the standard Mac OS GUI that every computer in what I'm going to start calling the XFAAU, the X-Files and Adjacent Universe. So, oh, nice. nice. Boom. Yeah, every every computer in the XFAU has that. Everybody uses the Mac OS on their computers. So mm-hmm. even though it's not really the Mac OS, but we know what it, it looks, looks like. like it, yeah. Yeah. 
Peter says he sent him something. And when the files pop up, he asks Frank if it's a familiar face. Frank is like, yeah. And on screen, we see what is most likely a mugshot of the man who tried to rape Maddie Haskell. And then we can see it on screen. And then Frank also reads it. Jake Waterston, 30, based on the episode date. His birthday is like March 21st. This episode is January 10th. So he'd be 30. Then there's an NCIC report that shows a warrant from December 2nd, 1992. That says he is wanted for the kidnap, rape, and murder of three nurses in Newport News, Virginia. He strangled them with a 10-pound test line and dumped the bodies in the James River. Peter says he's surfaced, living under the name Jim Gilroy for the past five years in Joplin, Missouri. Frank is like, how? And Peter says a Missouri state trooper was shot point blank. The vehicle at the scene was registered to a Jim Gilroy. They picked up Prince at his residence, and the NCIC matched them to Waterston. Frank says, let's make sure we don't lose him again. So... (laughs) So just a little note here. Actually, it's going to be two notes. One, as our discussion proceeds, we may either say Gilroy or Waterston. And a couple of times, we're actually just going to say Jim, depending on the scene. Because okay. he obviously is using different names. So, Also, unrelated, but since we're here doing take note, towards the end of this episode, there are some serious, like, was the script editor totally high when they were doing this show? I don't know. And I just rolled with that in the summary because I wrote the summary and so I can. So there'll be some commentary in the summary. Yeah, so. I will try not to trip over it. Yeah, or we'll make sure that we adjust it so that I do it. So there we one go. Way or the other. Yeah, it's all pretty much toward the back end. So. Gotcha, gotcha. You'll know uh, it when you see it. Okay. <laughs> also, I know we've been over Terry O'Quinn's credits, but I don't know if we mentioned that he was in Resident Alien. If we did, I hadn't seen the show yet. So now I have, and in Resident Alien, he plays Peter Bach. Bach is an alien experiencer whose unborn baby was abducted by aliens. And during that abduction, there's also, I think it's during that abduction, but at some point they also put an implant in Bach. So he's been abducted by aliens. He becomes a podcaster and a writer who talks about aliens and he calls himself the alien tracker. And he also hosts panels at UFO conventions, which is where Harry and Asta meet him. It turns out Bach, they're they're the heroes of the show. So Harry's the alien. Oh, so he's not the star. He's just a character in. Yeah, so he's just a character in the show. But the show is, yeah, but he's like this alien tracker guy who's like got a podcast and gives talks and stuff. And he's also one of the rare humans who can see through the alien's molecular reconstruction process that allows them to appear human. I just thought it was kind of neat because it's sort of X-Files adjacent that he's like this alien abductee, alien tracker guy who has like a podcast and a book series or whatever. And I was just like, oh, that's really, I don't know, this fun. Plus, mm. Resident Alien's a fun show. It's in the middle of season two. It's one of those things where they like released half the episodes of season two and then stopped. And I think they're going to release the second half in the summer or something. But yeah, it's it was a really fun watch so far. So, okay. If you're interested in that. He uses Experiencer, which I think yes. we first heard in Jose Chung. So yeah. Yeah, that was his term for it. So yeah. Also, a little bit of they live action because he can like the aliens look like humans but aren't human. So like in they live, they have the glasses that let you see the aliens. You know, well like like, Piper. Harry can can just see it. Yeah, Harry can use the DNA to like look like somebody. So he actually looks like a doctor named Harry Vanderspiegel, but only like very few people. And he's this. Wait, so the stars are aliens? The the star of the show is an alien. He's played by Alan Tudyk. And he is this guy who's an alien who came to Earth, his ship crashed, 
he is posing as this guy in this cabin in this small town in Colorado trying to find pieces of his ship and stuff. And then the town doctor is murdered and they know that he was like a forensic doctor. So they like go to his cabin and ask him if he can come look at the body of the doctor. Um, And that's how the show starts. And like he's in this little tiny town and there's only one person in the whole town who can see through this like molecular glamour he has. And it's this little kid named Max. So no one believes him. (laughs) It's really good. But then when they go to the Exiles convention, Bach is there. That's when Bach first appears and he can tell that Harry is an alien also. So they go to an X-Files convention. (laughs) They go to a UFO convention. Did I say X-Files convention? They go to a a UFO convention looking for aliens. Oh, damn. Holy shit. (laughs) But there there are some X-Files Oh, oh my god <laughs> there's also law and order references because harry learns english from law and order so it's it's, it's good it's really good there yeah does he say dun dun a lot he, he, he looks at the body and he's like i think this has been a murder dun dun it's so good it's so good the first time okay this really sounds good. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, this sounds fun. like I'm either gonna like it or I'm gonna hate it. Yeah, I mean it's, it's fun. It's kind of a mixed bag because some of it's really good, some of it's kind of weird. And it's you know, it's a sci-fi drama show, so like they keep trying to up the stakes and add more, more, more stuff. And sometimes I feel like that gets a little, little bit too much. But we'll see where it goes. It's only in the middle of season two. Okay. Well, back to Millennium. So <laughs> Bobby and Maddie are driving. We might have like a little preview of our upcoming podcast on Resident Alien. Who knows? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Bobby and Maddie are driving and they're arguing. And she's like, when are we going to stop and ask Gilroy where he is? And Bobby says they need to find a back road out of state. Maddie questions this and Bobby tells her to knock it off. He's doing everything he can for her. And Gilroy needs to know that he will kill him if he doesn't answer the question. In another vehicle, we see Frank looking through a file, and he says, you have to appreciate Gilroy's discipline. A man of his impulses, able to keep quiet for five years. Peter says he wasn't unknown to local PD, but never broke any law. So Peter's driving. Frank's in the passenger seat. Mm -hmm. Frank says he was facing multiple murder charges and capital punishment. He'd gone underground successfully. So why now? So then we're at the Haskell residence and it's 3 06 p.m. And Frank and Peter arrive, and state police and troopers are all about. And they go to the house, and Peter tells a trooper at the door that Captain Bigelow is expecting them. Inside, they meet Bigelow. He asks if they know Gilroy. Peter says they do, but under a different name. Frank pursued him with the FBI. He killed three women over a Labor Day weekend in Virginia. The services had to be closed caskets. In a corner is a gigantic television, like wall size. Like it is massive. The kind of thing that like people with like really, really rich people would have in the 90s, but was just not super common. Like it's gigantic. Even now, I think that's a big TV. Yeah, even now, I mean, unless you have like a movie theater in your home or like a projector screen, you're not going to have a TV. What makes it weird is it's probably as wide as a really large TV nowadays, but it's not a widescreen TV. Right. Standard TV for three ratio. So it's like super tall, too. Yeah, Yeah, it's really big. And despite the giant television, the home is pretty modestly furnished the home isn't that big everything's kind of run down so it does kind of stand out too 
And Frank sees something, so he turns on the TV, and it reveals the word angel scratched into the screen. Oh. I guess someone in the 90s was anticipating Joss Whedon's vampire show. I was like, I can't wait for Angel to be on the air. His other vampire show. Anyway, bad joke. I'm sorry. And Bigelow is like, what the hell does that mean? And Frank's like, I don't know. So in a bedroom, Frank looks around and there's a shattered mirror on a wall with blood along the edge of the remaining shards. In a bathroom, he sees what possibly looks like blood residue that wasn't completely washed away. And he puts on a glove and he runs a finger inside. And the residue definitely looks like dried blood. Then he has a flash of a woman who looks similar enough to maybe be Maddie's mother, possibly Colleen. And she smashes the mirror with her fist. Then Gilroy is holding a shard. Bathwater runs. A woman's voice sounds fearful and she cries. And the shards cut into flesh, and the bloody shard is dropped into the bathtub. Oh. Frank leaves the bathroom and enters another bedroom. In there, there's blood spatter on the sheets. Bigelow and Peter appear behind him. Frank tells Bigelow there's blood residue in the bathtub. Bigelow tells him a woman died here recently, but it's unrelated as far as they know. And Frank asks who? And he's like, Colleen Haskell. She bled to death in the bathtub. They buried her yesterday, which the fact that there's still blood in that tub is really creepy. Anyway. Well, I mean, it is it is like you just didn't rinse the bathtub out very well. The bathtub is dirty. It's not like like the maid missed it. It's like the place is not clean. Oh, yeah. No, it hasn't been cleaned in probably a while. And Frank asked if it was a suicide. And Bigelow says that's what the coroner concluded. Frank says they may want to reconsider that. Oh, Frank finds a small photo album, and in it, there are wedding photos from several years ago, and there's a man with a child. Frank asks if this is Colleen's husband. Bigelow says it must be, but she was divorced, he thinks. Frank asks if she had any children, and she did. Madeline Haskell, age 20. Bigelow says she lives there, but they haven't been able to locate her. Back in the bedroom with the blood on the bed, Frank has a flash with a POV that is basically Gilroy raping Maddie. Only the viewer is in Maddie's point of view, so it's disturbing. Frank asks if the blood has been typed and cross-matched. Bigelow says they assumed it was the mother's, but he'll get a tech to take a sample. Yeah, because I think the first bedroom was the mother's bedroom, and the second one with the blood on the bed is Maddie's bedroom. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah. Frank says it's very important they find the daughter, and Peter nods. Bigelow asks if they think she's involved. Frank says an inordinate amount of violence and suffering has occurred in this house. She may know something that can help them. Mm. So then we're at a diner, nighttime, and Bobby and Maddie are seemingly the only customers there. And Bobby is eating what looks like scrambled eggs. And he's holding, he's like, he holds a fork like, you would hold a motorcycle handle. Like he's all like, <laughs> yeah, he, does. he does. Anyway, we get an extended voiceover here that cements the narrator as Maddie. And it's in the form of a letter and begins dear angel. And she tells angel about her mama and how all this would make her sad. She has pulled out a photo of her mother and it is the woman from Frank's flashes. She says her mama never liked Bobby, but Maddie still fell in love with him for some reason that he made her feel pretty. She talks about a summer night in high school with him, 
But then starts talking about secrets and how her mama had a hard life. And she's kind of glad Angel wasn't around to see her hurt like she did. And then she's like, I'm not saying this excuse for anything. She just never wanted to be one of those people who got used to always being sad. And then she ends it with love, Maddie. So, hmm. Hmm. Then we see Bobby get out of a car in an isolated dark woods. And he has a tire iron in his hand. He opens the trunk. And Gilroy is in the back. He's got a big old bloody gash on his head and his eye is all messed up. Bobby calmly asks, where is he? And Gilroy doesn't answer. So Bobby's kind of agitated and is like, where is he? Asked again. Still no answer. Then he raises the tire iron and Gilroy pulls up his arms to try to protect himself. In the car, we see Maddie and she's covering her ears as the sound of thunks punctuate Bobby telling Gilroy to answer him. And then Maddie flashes to a POV of her mother and father bringing her a cake with six candles in it and telling her to make a wish. And then Bobby continues to beat Gilroy, who finally sputters out the words, all right, all right, I'll tell you. And then Maddie puts her head in her lap, covering her ears, crying. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) and commercial. Yeesh. So then we're at the Missouri State Police Barracks in Joplin, Missouri, and it's 10.03 p.m. Someone didn't get the 10.13 memo. (laughs) Frank and Peter are watching the dash cam footage from the car of the trooper that was shot and killed. The timestamp is 2318-1-17-1997. So they are Y2K ready. Yay! Yay! Bigelow says the trooper did everything he was supposed to, but he never saw the gun. Frank has Peter Pan, which made me laugh when I wrote it because I was like, Peter Pan? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Frank has Peter Pan, the screen. Now I can't say it without saying it like a name. (laughs) Frank has Peter Pan, the screen, to focus on the car as he has him run through section of it and then, like, you know, stop periodically to look at stuff. Mm -hmm. Bigelow flinches as the trooper is shot and he tells him the shooter used armor piercing rounds. Mm. Yeah. Peter says they penetrated just enough to cause death by hydrostatic shock. His internal organs were destroyed by the shock waves from the impact. Mm. I don't know if that's a thing, but it I don't either, gross. but it sounds awful. Yeah. Frank asks Peter what's wrong with the MO. And Peter says he never used a gun. And then Bigelow's like, well, how did he kill those women? And Frank says he garroted and cut them. So mm. different. Yep. Yeah, they may be Y2K ready, but a better system would be 1997-01-17-2318. That way, all your files sort numerically in order, no matter what's going on. So you can put spaces in there, you can put dashes in there, you can put periods in there, whatever you want. As long as you're consistent about what you're using or not using, then you're fine. Yeah. Awesome. So, Also, we are seeing into the future because the dash cam is dated January 17th, 1997. Exactly one week after this episode first aired. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Peter zooms in and Bigelow is like, are you trying to tell me Gilroy wasn't the shooter? Frank says the man you know is Gilroy. We know is Jake Waterston. He's not an unintelligent man. He's neither rash nor careless. If he had no reason to believe his new identity was being threatened, 
he wouldn't act impulsively. Then he has Peter stop and go back, and he sees that there's movement in the passenger seat. But it can't be Gilroy. He's 6'2". The passenger is too small. The report says two blood types were found at the scene. The troopers, B negative, and another, A negative. Frank says the A negative is Gilroy, but there's no evidence he was wounded in the shooting. Bigelow says they considered he may have been injured earlier. Frank doesn't think Gilroy was behind the wheel. Bigelow asks who the passenger is then. Frank thinks it could maybe be the daughter, Maddie Haskell. Bigelow says if Gilroy wasn't driving and wasn't in the passenger seat, then where the hell was he? Frank doesn't say anything, but he definitely has a that's a good question look on his face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And they did a very good job of being realistic and not being all enhanced, enhanced, enhanced. Because every time Peter zooms in, the image looks not good. It's like all pixelated and stuff. So I'm very happy. They could have easily done, you know, the CSI business, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. They were like, yeah. Good job. Good job. And actually, and actually, they do a pretty good job on that of this series. Even when Frank is doing his enhanced enhanced stuff. Yeah. It's not really anything you couldn't do in Photoshop. So he's not, they're not going crazy. He's just making good use of like contrast and exposures <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So he does a little, there's a little, like, I mean, there's a little exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah. How much you could actually you know, probably do, especially like in some 90s, smoothing but... that goes on a little bit sometimes. And then things get a little clearer, but for the most part, they do a pretty good job. So probably the most egregious was in wide open with a little image from the camera where it was like mm -hmm. caught on the reflection. Yeah, the reflection. That was probably, yeah. that was probably the most egregious one. But. Yeah. So then we're in Springdale, Arkansas, and it is 12.15 a.m. Maddie and Bobby pull up to a private road, and the mailbox reads Nesmith. Bobby loads his gun and wakes up Maddie and tells her we're here. Let me see Catherine. She's in bed reading, and Jordan is asleep right next to her. And the phone rings, and it's Frank. And he's calling from his motel room, and he wanted to tell them goodnight. Catherine tells him that Jordan tried to stay awake and he's like, oh, and he apologizes because you know, Jordan's asleep. And then she asks him how it's going. He's like, fine. And she's like, hey, you need to do better than that. because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So he tells her like there's a trooper killed. The local law enforcement think they have a suspect, but he disagrees. He went down there looking for a man he knew, but something else is going on. A young woman may be with the killer, but he believes she's innocent. And Catherine's like, well, then why would she be with the killer? And Frank says, that's what he needs to figure out. So he tells her that he loves her. And she's like, me too. And then they hang up and say goodnight. So. Mm -hmm. And then there's a storm of brewing. And there's a dog barking outside that's chained up, which is not cool. No. But, yeah. Gilroy's car is outside of the home. And inside, we see an older man and a woman, the Nesmiths, and they wake up because the dog's barking. And so Mr. Nesmith goes down to check on the dog. And through the door, he asks her, like, what are you barking at, girl? And then behind him, a voice is all, me. And he turns around, and he sees someone shining a light in his face and holding a gun at him. And it's Bobby Weber, right? We can see it's Bobby Weber. And Bobby's like, where is he? And Nesmith is like, where's who? And who are you? And how did you get in here? Bobby pulls back the hammer onto the gun and tells him not to move. And then he's like, where is he? 
tell me where he is and I'll be out of here. And then again, Nesmith is like, who? And he's like, you're going to be out here right now. And he starts to like go forward. And then we cut to outside and we see a muzzle flash in the window and the sound of a gunshot. And Maddie is kind of like shocked out. Like she's maybe like half asleep or like zoning out. And it's like, <gasps> and then we hear Mrs. Nesmith inside and the dog is barking. And then we hear Mrs. Nesmith scream. And there's another muzzle flash from an upstairs window accompanied by a gunshot. Maddie flinches and she begins to cry and the dog's barking turns to a low whimper. And Bobby comes and gets back in the car and Maddie just starts hitting him and yelling like, what did you do? Tell me, tell me. And doing that thing where you're just like hitting someone and he grabs her by the hair and he tells her to shut up and not to make him hit her. And then he tells her that he wasn't there. Gilroy lied to them and then Maddie is crying and so Bobby is not a good dude no no, no. He's randomly killing people also he's very like abusive to Maddie yeah so, 100% no he's awful yeah. I'm glad he I was afraid he's gonna shoot the dog too <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah I was like oh don't go don't go there so I kind of like when the dog's barking slowly started turning to a low whimper, I was like, okay, the dog's probably safe. If the dog had been barking the whole time, I could see him. Cause he come, when he comes out, he comes out from around the back of the house, not from the front of the house, mm-hmm. which I guess is maybe how he got in possibly. But yeah, when the dog like starts just whining, I was like, okay, probably not going to shoot the dog. So I mean, he's not the people though. He's the poor old people. I know. Like, well, that's the thing is he goes in and he's like, where is he? Where is he? And then he just shoots them both. Well, he shoots the guy and then he goes upstairs and mm-hmm. murders the poor woman. It's like, Jesus, she didn't even see you. Like what? Uh, anyway, not that you should murder anyone, but I'm just saying. Well, why? he's apparently looking for whoever they're looking for. And so went upstairs to see if maybe that person was there. Yeah, so maybe. I don't know. I don't but still, know. it doesn't mean you got to shoot people. They don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, obviously he's little unhinged and not in a good way so yeah i mean not that this is a rationale for shooting someone but i guess he had to shoot the state trooper because that was obviously gilroy's car it's not his car so he's making up that story about the fix-it ticket so that right. would come out when he gave the guy his license so but still whew. anyway yeah yeah so bobby opens the trunk and he tells gilroy truth or dare and it better be truth He tells Gilroy, don't be brave, be smart. And he points the gun at Gilroy's knees. Gilroy says they'll kill him anyway. Maddie rushes forward and grabs him. And she's like, just tell us where he is, for God's sake. Tell us where he is. And she shakes him and repeats the question. Gilroy's in bad shape. And you can, you know, he's kind of, obviously he's in bad shape. He's been drunk for who knows how long. He's he's been hit. And Gilroy's like, get her off me, get her off me. So Bobby pulls her away and tells her that getting hysterical isn't going to help. He then points the gun against Gilroy's chest and Gilroy says he'll tell them, but then he kind of like sighs and like kind of passes out or something. Yeah. He's kind of like, I'll tell you. And then he's like, ah, I'm like, he's a pirate. He's like, ah, and then just, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I'm guessing he's like, yeah, just from like his wounds and maybe her shaking him like there was pain or something. And he like, yeah. Well, and if he got hit in the head and he has a head injury and she's shaking him, who knows? Yeah. And then we get voiceover as Bobby is pushing Gilroy's car into a lake as Maddie watches and she's crying. And the voiceover starts with Dear Angel and she talks about being in church and believing in miracles without being able to witness them. That's what faith is. You have to believe. She wishes Angel had been sitting with her that day. She can't see him or touch him, 
but he's always in her heart. And then she ends love Maddie. And we see the car sink beneath the water. Ooh, and then it's commercial. Uh-oh. It's not good for Gilroy. Nope. And we come back at the Haskell residence, and it's 1.30 a.m. And Frank is going through the home with a flashlight, likely trying to find out why Maddie might be gone. And he's flipping through some photos, and he finds a yearbook. And he finds her photo. And then as he's flipping through it, he finds an inscription from Bobby W. That says she'll be his after basic training. So then he finds a photo for Robert Weber. And then a small stack of letters falls out, like that was tucked into the yearbook. And one of them has an envelope that's addressed to Angel Haskell. But there's only a name. There's no address. But the envelope does have a stamp on it, like they were going to mail it, but there's no address. So (laughs) inside is a letter. And we get Maddie's voiceover as Frank reads it. And also, I just want to say it's lucky that Bobby used his initial when he signed the yearbook. So Frank could easily look him up. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's kind of just a random place to sign it, too. Like, Yeah, the whole thing is it's very lucky for Frank, I guess. Anyway, dear Angel, I never told you about the night you left. I'd gone out for groceries. And when I came home, you were gone. I was terrified. I was lost. I couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody. I must have driven for hours looking for you, but there was no sign. I got tired and I kind of gave up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I gave up on you that night. Please forgive me. And then another reads, Dear Angel, it's Christmas Eve. And it talks about how when Maddie was 10, she caught her mama putting presents under the tree And the fact that Santa wasn't real and how she wished he was real and would bring him home to her. Then in the letter, she says she has to go. He hates it when she writes to Angel and she can hear him coming up the stairs. Frank looks at the bed with blood splatter and he has a flash of Gilroy coming through the door with a bottle in his hand, drunk. Mm. Then there's movement in the house and it catches Frank unawares. Then he realizes it's just Peter who asks if he found anything. Frank says just some letters that were never sent. He thinks they may have been written to her father. Peter says the father was John Haskell. He just up and split. Frank wonders if that's the destination. Then they hear a car drive up and they both turn. It's a state patrol car with the roof lights flashing. They go outside. It's Bigelow. He tells them they found Gilroy's car, two hours south in Springdale, Arkansas. They arrive at the lake, which is maybe just a pond. I don't know. It's it's actually, I thought it was a lake, but apparently it might just be like a pond near the property because it's kind of small. But anyway, the local troopers are pulling out the vehicle. The one in charge, Flanagan, tells them they got a call from the caretaker who was coming by to drop off some fertilizer. Frank asks how long ago. He says about three hours. So Frank has them to crank it up. Pull it out fast because he's thinking there might be someone in that car. They pry open the trunk and Gilroy pours out gasping in a flow of water. They call for paramedics and then Peter asks where the nearest house is. Flanagan says about 100 yards across the way, but no one was home. And then Peter goes over to Frank. And after a moment, he's like, they're dead, aren't they? And Frank says, yes. And Bigelow says that they're right back where they started. But Frank disagrees. He tells Bigelow, now they have someone to talk to. So in a large pickup truck, Bobby and Maddie sit parked in a field somewhere. Bobby strokes her hair and tells her that they'll find him. 
And then he asks her if she's happy. And she says, yes. And he kisses her, but she kind of pulls away. And he's like, well, then prove it. And then he forces himself on her. And she tells him to stop, but he doesn't. And we cut to outside the pickup as she tells him no and to stop. And as he rapes her in the truck, we get voiceover, which transitions into Maddie with her hair tied back, sitting and telling the story. Mm -hmm. She says, I've never been clear on why they call it making love. Every time I let Bobby have me, it felt more like, like making peace, you know, killing time, a few precious minutes to myself. I found out my real dad had hit my mom a couple times. Then she took up with Jim and he just hit her more often. I can't stop blaming myself for what happened to my mom. When she found out what Jim had done to me, she just, she couldn't live with it. I know I'm guilty for letting what happened happen, but if I didn't stay in that car, I knew I'd never see Angel again. Ooh. Yes, rough, rough. So then we see someone unlocking what looks like a prison door and then Frank enters and Gilroy is in a hospital bed and what I'm assuming is like a prison infirmary. Probably. And he's being questioned about who killed the Nesmiths. He says he was in the trunk. And then when they ask him why they were trying to kill him by putting him in the trunk, whoever pushed the car in there, he's like, can I have a soda? He has like a super douchey smile. He's, He's gross. Yeah. Anyway. Frank enters and asks him who Maddie is riding with. And Gilroy is like, what's that? And Frank says, you know who she is. And Gilroy says he doesn't. And then Frank is like, I know you. And Gilroy is like, really? In that kind of like whatever kind of way. Like, you don't know me. And then Frank recites his address in Virginia, where he worked, what kind of car he drove, his real name, Jake Waterston, and that he killed three women. So he has no reason to lie now. So, busted. Watterson says that they beat him and locked him in that trunk. He'd be dead if it wasn't for the air pocket. Did they ever think about that? And Frank says, yeah, I do, but not in the way you think. I'm like, oh, (laughs) burn. Oh, busted, man. And then Frank tells him that Maddie is with her boyfriend, Bobby Weber. Frank asks why Weber assaulted him. And Watterson is like, well, I wasn't ready for it. So he doesn't say why. He's just like, you know, basically explaining like how he got caught off guard kind of thing. Cause I'm a man. Mm-hmm. He never would have got me if I didn't pay attention. Right. I'm trying to rape his girlfriend. Anyway. Oh, gross. I know. Anyway, gross. Frank asks what he did to Maddie. And he's like, nothing. And then Frank says he killed her mother. And Waterston says she was a hothead. She committed suicide. And Frank says that he let her. He watched. He abused Maddie. And then Frank asks whose angel is, and then Watterson is silent. So then Peter arrives and tells Frank that he found Maddie's father. He was incarcerated in the state correctional facility in Missouri. He died there a year ago. The body was never claimed. So either she doesn't know her father is dead or, and then Frank says she's after something else. Mm-hmm. So then Bobby is driving the stolen pickup and Maddie is asleep in the passenger seat. And then we see Frank outside the facility taking in the night air. And Peter comes out and he tells them that the Newport News DA sends his regards. They've started the paperwork to bring Waterston back for trial. He tells Frank he didn't get away this time. And Frank nods, but he says that it isn't finished. 
Frank says she wrote intimate personal letters to him, but still in present tense, almost confessional letters, like she was trying to provide an oral history to him. Then he blinks and he turns to Peter and he says he needs Maddie Haskell's medical records. He thinks he knows what she's after and who Angel is. <gasps> and this commercial. And then we come back from commercial and we see the stolen pickup passes a sign that says Little Rock, 20 miles. Dawn is breaking. Mm -hmm. Then we're at Arkansas State Police Headquarters and it's 628 a.m. And Frank and Peter are going through records and Bigelow asks if they found anything yet. And Frank says no. And Bigelow says no sign of that pickup yet on the wire. And then he shakes his head and says they're long gone. And he walks away. Frank finds a birth record for Angel Weber with his little footprints on it. It's all cute. <laughs> and the date is July 14th, 1995 at 11 a.m. He weighed eight pounds and zero ounces and he was a male. Apparently, the father is unspecified, despite the fact that it says Angel Weber, which would yeah. imply mm -hmm. that it's Bobby Weber. Also, Joplin, Missouri, apparently sent all their hospital records in hard copy to Arkansas for Frank and Peter to go through because they're apparently in Arkansas, but they're looking through hard copy records of the medical records from Joplin, Missouri. And also, they're super cool with Bigelow just hanging out there in Arkansas, even though he's a Missouri State Trooper. I don't know. Either that or the screen legend is wrong, but... The building would be wrong then because it's not the same building. It's a different building than huh. the Missouri one. So I don't know what's going on. Anyway, it's a little weird. Editor, <laughs> taking a little butt. But anyway, so yeah. Frank asks if they can access Gilroy's bank transactions from there. And Peter says, we just need a phone line. So, <laughs> so Bobby and Maddie are driving and it's night again for some reason. Uh, it was just yep. on, but now it's now it's nighttime. Yep. Anyway, she has the window down and her hair is blowing and she tells him to go faster. And he asks what she's going to say when she sees him. She says she doesn't know. Meanwhile, Peter finds a $7,000 wire transfer into Gilroy's account about 10 months ago. Frank says that's two months after Maddie gave birth. They're both quiet for a bit, and then Frank says Gilroy stole Maddie's baby and sold it and bought himself a TV. Peter says that's sick, but it's emotive. That also explains why the word angel was scratched into the TV and why she was in that car. They find out who transferred the funds into Gilroy's account, and a trooper calls to put them into protective custody. And Nick points out, hopefully, to arrest them for illegal child trafficking. Yeah. Then Peter checks their account because Frank hopes the adoptive family would have made a transfer to him and they can find them before Bobby does. So the date on the wire transfer is October 31st. Angel was born on the 14th. Frank says that's two months after Maddie gave birth, which would be, so it'd be August, September 14th. So that's off by a little bit. Okay, not too bad. But then Peter is like, this happened 10 months ago. They're looking at dash cam footage just dated January 17th. October 31st is not 10 months from, mm -hmm. at least in the reverse direction, 10 months in the forward direction. Yes, but not in the reverse direction. So, yeah. So there's nothing, nothing really is working with those dates. But anyway. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was hung up on the amount of money because I was <laughs> like, what? So $7,000 in 1997 is just $12,000 in today's money. 
And I realized he bought some like massive TV that probably was almost $7,000 at the time. But like, my dude, that is not even enough to buy a new car. And it wasn't enough to buy a new car in 1997. Like, if you're going to sell a baby, at least get enough for like a car and some other stuff. You could buy a new car for $12,000. Can you? Yeah, they had the Geos. And I think that's when Hyundai started coming to the United States. Yeah, a lot of those were like... (laughs) Or like ten thousand dollar cars. I, mean, I was thinking about why well, no. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, definitely. Well, you, today you, definitely, you could. Most cars are all closer to sixteen twenty thousand anyway, and that I'm, I'm talking brand new. Obviously, you can get a used car for less, but I'm just saying, like right. that's just such a paltry amount of money, like seven thousand dollars for a baby. Like, not that you should be selling baby legally, but if you're going to, maybe get enough to like. I don't know, do something better than buy a TV, get the TV and then have some money in your savings, get a car, get a house. I don't know. Jeez. Well, you'll also got to assume that he is going to be getting the low end of the part because there's going to be the middleman, right? He needs to, yeah, but he's, he's got the baby. That feels like know, the important piece but, of that puzzle. But it's like everything else. The, the producer always gets the lowest part, right? Like, you know, if you're a coffee farmer, you get a shit rate. And then the person who like roast the coffee gets, you know a little bit more and then the person who sells the coffee gets even more it's like it goes up because people got to make money as you got middlemen right so yeah. um, i agree with what you're saying i was going to comment because you were like it's just twelve thousand dollars in today's money i'm like tori like you're elitist what are you mr <laughs> this is like no i mean only, only twelve thousand but i get what you're $12, saying thousand like, dollars right now would literally change my life like you know i'm yeah. not saying it's a paltry amount of money but for a baby that feels like a very tiny amount. If you're selling a baby on the black market, I feel like you could probably get at least 50. Anyway, I don't know much about. Well, baby I mean, it's not like he's got super <laughs> connections. I don't know. I mean, he obviously isn't like, you know, no, not, clearly that's not his thing. Of but still, things, it just so. it struck me as such a low amount that it really just jarred me a lot. So anyway, yep. I mean, people get killed for 20 bucks. So it's true. You know. It's true. So then it is 846 a.m. And the pickup pulls up to an extremely large home. Bobby is like, look at this place. And Maddie says, Angel must love living here. And Bobby loads his gun and tells her that her boy is only one years old. He don't know no better. And then he's like, we'll go inside and get him and be done. And then Maddie's just sitting there and she's like, he must love it here. And I'm like, Angel, isn't he your boy too? Like, what, what the <laughs> hell? Like, this guy's a fucking psychopath. I mean, yeah. not that this is what tipped me off. No, I mean, I the shooting earlier, the random but, old people was pretty much like that. But, I mean, that wasn't even the start, like, but that was definitely your bigger yeah, clue. I mean, and this house is a full-on mansion, like no Mick required. It is not. Yeah, it is gigantic. Right. I mean, they could have afforded more than $7,000. They probably paid more than well, $7,000. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. See, yeah, like, I know. I know. Got I 7, get 000, it. I get that and then, the middleman probably fenced the baby for 100000 and idiot yeah, because, oh, idiot rapist dude got the raw deal. But I'm just saying. Yeah, because we don't know. Like, it, well, I guess they must have just paid. So there's not someone else in there, too, because they obviously paid this guy. And that's how they were able to track it. So um, unless they went somewhere else and we don't get that plot point because. So, yeah, so it must just be one person in between. Yeah. And then we see a line of police cars racing down the road. Whoa, 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 whoa. And Frank's like, have the Travises been contacted? And Peter tells them the line is down. But Little Rock PD is responding now. And then we see all the cars enter Little Rock City limits. Whew. 
So a doorbell rings and we see Wade Travis going to the door. And he looks through the peephole and we see Bobby is holding flowers and all flowers for Adeline Travis. And then so as Travis is unlocking the door, Bobby bursts through, knocking him to the ground. Bobby puts a gun right in his Travis's face. And Wade Travis says, like, we don't have anything. And Bobby's like, yeah, you do. You got Maddie's boy. And then Adeline Travis calls down to Wade and he's like, stay upstairs and lock the door. And then Bobby hits him in the face with a gun. And he's like, Adeline, you better get your ass down here. And so like no one shows up for a while. It's kind of quiet. And then Adeline Travis slowly appears at the top of the stairs holding a baby boy. And Maddie's face just goes like raw emotion. I don't know how to describe it. It's just yeah kind of like whoa she just kind of breaks down she sees the baby and just like yeah just completely yeah bobby keeps hollering for her to come down the stairs and she slowly does and she sees her husband on the floor and he's like give me the baby and she's like no and then she's like why and he says because you stole him and she's like no we adopted him it was legal we have the papers and maddie is crying and angel is crying and adeline is crying and bobby's yelling and waving the gun around And then Maddie steps forward and Adeline slowly gives Angel to her. And again, everyone is crying except for Bobby and Wade. And in fairness, Wade is unconscious or a spineless coward playing dead. I don't know. Either way, (laughs) Maddie is like asking Angel if he's been a good boy and and how he's gotten so big and how he has his granddaddy's eyes. And Bobby's like, come on, it's time to go. Maddie kisses Angel and is holding him. And Bobby's like, Maddie, come on. And then Maddie walks over and hands Angel back to Adeline Travis. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? And she says, he belongs here. And he's like, not after all this, he doesn't. And he goes towards Adeline and Angel. But Maddie says, no, that they should just go. And so he keeps going. And so she tries to stop him. And he turns around and he smacks Maddie right across the mouth. Mm. And she falls to the ground. And then he's about to grab Angel when all the police pull up. And announce themselves and they all get out and they got their guns aimed at the house, right? And they're on the, you know, megaphone, you know, hey, we got the place surrounded, that kind of thing. Bobby goes and he looks out the window and then he turns and he's like, now see what you've done, talking to Maddie. And then he's like, they won't shoot me if I come out holding a baby. And he goes to climb the stairs and tells Adeline to give him the kid. And as he goes up, Maddie comes up from behind him. And pulls the gun out of the back of his pants. Because he put it in his pants instead of just holding it. And she holds the gun on him. And then he looks at her. And then he just smiles and heads right toward her. And then outside, we hear a gunshot. And all the police are like, and then slowly the front door opens. And we see it's Maddie. And Frank runs out in front of all the cops. He's like, hey, no, no, hold the fire, hold the fire. And we see Maddie standing at the door. And Frank approaches. And then when he gets there. He slowly pushes the door wide enough to see inside. And he tells Maddie that it's okay. And he takes the gun from her hand down at her side. And then inside, Bobby is on the floor and he's dead. Mm-hmm. And the three Travises are all holding each other really close to Bobby's dead body. Honestly. Yeah. Like, I know. They're, it was weird because they're like huddled right behind. Him. It's a huge entryway too. Like you said, it's a mansion. They do not need to be huddled that close to him, but okay. I mean, they're probably in shock. They probably aren't thinking straight. So fine. Pass. Yeah. So Frank like gestures at the baby and asks if that's Angel. And she smiles and turns to look at her son with his family. And she says, yeah. And then she says, bye-bye, my baby. 
and Frank walks away with her from the house. Yeah, they're going to need to replace that carpet. Hopefully, they'll decide to go with wood or tile or something because carpet in the entryway. Man, what were they thinking? I don't know. I mean, there are some really nice vinyl laminates now that look really great. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe Angel isn't better off with them. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Also, I have my questions about the Travis because I admit I don't trust rich people at all. I don't like rich people, but the whole like we adopted him it was legal like that's not something you just normally say when someone like you're telling someone about adopting a child so and we know they bought him oh yeah i'm sure she has papers that say it was legal i'm sure it looks legal on paper yeah that's just like not the same thing it's legal like that would not be the first thing that pops in your head well i mean it would if someone was accusing you of kidnapping the baby maybe but still you could just say we adopted him we have the papers you wouldn't be like it's legal like, yeah, I mean it probably wasn't. So, and we yeah, know it. We know seems, at least it wasn't on yeah. one end. So, probably not on the other. Yeah. Also, I think that house might be that mansion. Honestly, might be from season one, episode eighteen of the X Files, Miracle Man, the one that's in that one. I I don't know. I'm going from pure memory because I don't really care enough to go look. But I think it might be the same house. It looks familiar. So, if it's not from that, we might have seen it in another episode, which would make sense. So, so then we cut back to Maddie with her hair pulled back like we saw previously, and she says that she hasn't seen Angel since that day. The Travises send her a picture once in a while, but she asked them not to tell him anything about her. She doubts anybody could love him more than she does. But she realized that day that a life with her, that wasn't a price he should have to pay. He'd end up just like another Bobby or Jim or like her father. She wanted a clean life for him, and at least she had a hand in giving him that. And we see Frank is sitting across the table from her. And she looks at him and she tells him that he saved her that day. He's the only man in her life that ever did something nice for her. And then he asks her if she needs anything. and She says no. She appreciates him visiting her. She says if he has the time, come back if he can. She asks him to bring his daughter. She'd love to meet her. He says he will. And then he tells her that she's going to be all right. And she lets out a deep breath. And a guard opens the door and tells them that time's up. Maddie tells Frank she spends her time thinking of Angel, praying that he ain't thinking of her. She hands him a photo, kisses him on the forehead, and then goes off with the guard. He looks at the photo. It's of Jordan. He looks up from the photo. The end. Yep. I'm like, God damn, this show is destroying me, man. <laughs> I was so I uh, I was crying at the end of this episode. Aw. So, yeah. I don't know, just like, ugh, there's so much trauma. Like, the I know. last three episodes have just been like, oh. They've been really hard, <laughs> weird family dynamics. And, like, I really do feel bad for Maddie because clearly, like, can you imagine having a baby and coming home from the grocery store and he's gone and your mom won't tell you anything because your stepfather will probably beat her within an inch of all her life if she does. And then your stepfather is, like, a terrible drunk rapist who won't tell you anything and like your baby's just yeah. not there like talk about nightmare scenario 
and also your boyfriend abuses you seems like a great situation yeah and i don't know if he was her stepfather i think he was just living there but i don't well know yeah but the guy but, who's yeah. her mom's yeah, boyfriend maybe. or whatever yeah but whew. Locke has things to say about the episode yeah, too apparently Locke's very vocal today yeah so as we mentioned in the beginning maddie's accent it's a little iffy i did get used to it though and she was able to act past it, in my opinion. Like, she's got the crying down. Like, we saw that in the X-Files, right? She's a crier. She can do that for sure. Mm-hmm. So I do think that they probably could have placed this story somewhere else, including Waterston's, like, original crimes, like, where they didn't need to have it be an accent. It could have been just as rural and remote and not required them to be all accenty. I don't know. It just seems like that was something they, like, put upon people. I mean, some of them did it better than others, but it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Like you could have written it to be somewhere where you didn't need to do that. I think sometimes southern accents, even though this is Missouri, it's not really southern, but I think sometimes those people use those as like a shorthand for you know things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I did have a question about I mean, I think we're supposed to assume that Bobby is the father, especially with the whole like Angel Weber. But could Jim have been the father? father maybe i mean we don't know when he started assaulting her i don't i think it's supposed to maybe just have been the once and then after the funeral he decides to do it again but i don't know they never really specified so yeah they don't really let us know so i'm not sure i think it's supposed to be bobby but bobby doesn't act like it but then bobby is a psychopath so who knows that's true like yeah who knows and I'm guessing he went to like the military and then either got kicked out or left after two years. But it's all like after boot camp, you'll be mine. And then, you know, she's 20. It seemed from the yearbooks that maybe he was a year older than her, possibly. I don't know. But yeah. But yeah, he's he's a, he's a nut job. That's for sure. So Yeah. No, he really is. Also, I knew the plot involved her having had a baby. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting for a chance where I could jump in with like, of course, she's had lots of babies, all from those satanic rituals, because from the X-Files episode. But like the slot never opened. And I give them credit for that because they just didn't give me the space to do that. They kept it nice and tight and emotional. Yeah. And so. yeah I knew it was a baby basically when she started looking for him. I was like, oh, she's got uh, some kid that went missing and she's looking for her kid. Okay. But that was, I don't know, that's just where my mind went, missing kids. So, yeah, I was pretty much on that page already. And when they kept talking about the father, I'm like, she's not looking for her father. She wouldn't call her father angel. Come on. Anyway. Yeah. And at first, too, I thought it was just like a turn afraid. Again, I originally thought the voiceover was actually her mother talking to her, like from beyond mm-hmm. the grave kind of thing. Yeah. Actually, in the beginning, it actually fits. Like it could have, it could have been. Oh, totally. Way. Yeah. So there was one error that I held back because of where it fell and it's again it's kind of a script editing thing probably in the episode adeline calls her husband wade travis she calls him wade in the credits it's listed as sam travis Hmm. so and speaking of credits the actor jim swanson is best known as officer slash detective ted johnson in the trailer park boys properties including the movie and the animated series and I don't know. I say best known. His character is like in 22 of over 250 episodes. So I don't know like how big a thing he is or how big his role is in any of the productions he appears in. In fact, the only thing I know about the Trailer Park Boys is what I learned when I was looking this up. But I do know now where this meme comes from. And I put a picture in our show notes. 
It's the oh. meme of the dude with the glasses and the big old giant eyes. I see that everywhere. I didn't know what it was from. Apparently, it's from the Trailer Park Boys. Okay. Yeah, I so. didn't know that's what that was from either. I, I've definitely seen that guy all over the internet. But yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, there's some other people. There's other ones, too, that I saw that I'm like, oh, I see that picture everywhere, too. The different characters. And I was like, oh, all right. So, yeah. Which is kind of funny because, like, with this meme in particular, he's got the glasses and they're super thick. And so his eyes are all super giant, right, because of the magnification. And he's like, oh, ooh. In the episode, Wade Travis, he's not this character, but he gets hit like at least twice, once right in the face. (laughs) Yet his glasses are always like perfectly in place. They never like fly off or are broken. (laughs) He's got like blood on his head. His glasses are still like just right there. It's funny. So I had to go back at one point because when he's laying there unconscious, his glasses are on and they're perfectly in place. And I was like, wait, didn't they get knocked off? Because I thought they got knocked off when he first gets knocked down and Bobby puts the gun in his face, but he has them on there too. And they're like perfectly in place. So it's like, you got knocked down backwards, you fell, and then they stayed in place, and then someone pistol whips you in the head, your glasses still stay on, and then, man, like he's like a hidden rubber band back there or something? Dude, I need glasses like that. Mine just come off when I'm walking, especially if I'm wearing a mask like at the store or something, they just slide down, (laughs) and I have to like make sure they don't fall off. I'm like, oh, yeah, anyway, it's a constant struggle. Yeah, so this episode... I learned something I did not know. Yeah. I'm the trailer keep... Park Boys is a meme. So, yeah, yeah, there we go. I didn't know that either. Yeah. I like this episode a lot. Nice. We'll break protocol again. I think maybe I'll go first. Sure. Um, yeah. I am going to give this one an eight. Nice. Nice. Short and sweet. So. Yeah. I'm going to give it a seven. I liked it a lot. I did think it was really good. It was, I mean, obviously Gilroy and Bobby are terrible, awful people, but like, Mm -hmm. it's really fascinating though. Even though I knew that she was probably looking for a lost kid or whatever, like the whole way that the story plays out is really well done. And like when he goes into that farmhouse and is like demanding to see the, you know, he's like, where is he? Where is he? And then he just like shoots the guy. And then like it pulls back and we see Maddie in the car and you just see like the progression of like lights. And then, you know, the noise in the house in the bedroom and like you hear the shot and you know, the woman has just been murdered. And like, it's so horrifying. It literally just like, I was like, Oh my gosh. But it definitely made me like sit up and go. Um, Well, then also too, like we mentioned, you're like, is he going to shoot the dog? yeah it's yeah that whole scene is just like so tense like it was really well done in terms of like tension and the stakes and stuff it was just really good and i like frank i like the way he sort of like deduces like no something else is going on and he doesn't immediately know but he knows that this isn't their guy their guy isn't gonna drive around and like shoot someone if he doesn't have to and draw attention to himself so i don't know i thought the whole thing was really well done it played out really well the pacing was good. I don't have any strong complaints about it. I think the voiceovers got a little bit like, you know, they get a little sappy and a little, they're not like quite Chris Carter level of like, you know, no. Mulder in the sky with diamonds nonsense. But like, they, you know, there were certain times where I was like, okay, we get it. Roll that on. might have to be a shirt now too. <laughs> Mulder in the sky, sky with Mulder diamonds. Sky with plants on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I thought it was really good. It was really entertaining. I enjoyed it. I thought the whole thing worked. I didn't have any strong complaints, okay. except for the whole seven thousand dollars for a baby. What are you doing, Sorry, my man? Like that. Whoa, what seven thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. 
Again, he's the low. He's he's on. He's the he's the bottom fish, right? He's I know, I know, and he's obviously not deal, good so. at that kind of crime. Like that's not his wheelhouse. But it's just one of those things I just thought was, I was super like because I was expecting to see some giant number on his bank balance, and I was like seven thousand dollars. My God. Yeah, they do kind of drop. I mean, I guess there's not really much they could do with it. They kind of drop the whole like. Did he kill the mother? Did she really commit suicide? Did he make it look like that? Was he did he just kind of like I don't know if encourages the right word, but you know what I mean? Kind of I thing. got serious so. shadows vibes from that, where you know that um mm-hmm. you know Howard oh, Howard Graves was killed by being Howard Graves. suicide. Howard Graves. Uh, that's what I thought happened because the way you see like her screaming in the bathroom and like uh-huh. we don't we don't see a lot because it's the vision right so it's all kind of just yeah and those visions are always bits yeah, and pieces but the way she's like going no no and screaming I, I got the impression that he cut her wrist and made her bleed out and so possibly yeah, because because we, we see him holding it and it's clean and then we see it cutting the skin and mm-hmm. I was wondering I didn't want I didn't put it in the notes but when I saw it I was like it looks like someone cutting the length of a forearm. But then I was like, well, it could have been. We don't know how she died exactly. I mean, they, we find out later, but yeah. I wasn't sure what was going on. And obviously, we know he, like, raped and cut up the other women that he did, right? And right. Cut them up bad enough. They had to be closed casting. So I was like, what happened? Well, and also, we know so. that she had found out that he had raped Maddie. Mm-hmm. And so then she maybe was not going to let him live there anymore or might have been willing to out him to the police or threatening to out him to the police. And then if he gets run by the police, you know, they put him in the system, they're going to find out who he is and they yeah. killed these other women. So I think that's, you know, strong motive for murder there. So I think that's probably what happened is that he killed her. Yeah. Also, uh, I have to say, like, there's some definitely like schadenfreude in this because like we know he's like a murder rapist and then obviously has been abusing the mother and then abusing the daughter. And then to see him brought down and him to be the abused and the victim is also kind of, you know, you kind of get that like, yeah, buddy, this is what it feels like. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that <laughs> shit. So, a little um, bit. Yeah. And then Frank's burn. Oh, my God. That was amazing. That was good. Yeah. And I liked <laughs> I also really liked Catherine and Frank's conversation when he kind of tries to shrug it off and not really tell her much because he's probably not in the mood to talk about it and whatever. Um, but she's just like, nope, you're going to have to do better than that. I thought that was good because it's a good peek into their relationship dynamic, right? Like he's trying also, to be in with the you. very beginning, going back to all the people who are like, oh, are they like, like, was like Jordan an immaculate conception? Because they have like <laughs> there, there was so much flirting and just their eyes in that scene with Jordan asking about the baby. That was freaking amazing. I am sorry. So if you're not picking up on that, you need to, I don't know. You don't know what a real relationship is, people. So and Jordan's cute. They're a cute family. I love the whole, like, he's pretending not to see her while she like crawls up mm-hmm. to attack. That was, that was cute. It was really cute. Yeah. So yeah, they're a cute family. Yeah. Yeah, and again, Lance Hendrickson is just like yeah, he's the scene where like Maddie is talking and like his his face just like he makes the smallest little facial expressions that like almost are unnoticed, and you're like, God damn, dude, that's how you do it. Holy shit, it's yeah. yeah. So, all right, Locke, we know we know how you feel. <laughs> okay, all right. Locke is not. This is too scary for him. He's not allowed to watch. Millennium. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's only 12. I know. Maybe when you're this. older, it's not, it's not for you. Although I was watching this stuff when I was 12, not Millennium, but the X-Files. Yeah. yeah. This, this is, a, a this is another worse. level. This is I a can, little can, worse. Yeah. These la- especially these last three episodes, they've been so rough 
Yeah. That I can kind of see where like, aside from when we talked about this, like the Friday night slot is a death slot. Like the fact that X-Files kind of did okay in that slot, it was able to move. Like getting moved to Sunday was definitely like a big like boom for the X-Files. Like that's where like you're out of the minor leagues now. You get to be in the in the main schedule, right? I can kind of see why maybe a lot of people were watching Millennium because it's a rough watch. <laughs> it's a rough watch. Like this would be this would be something I could see. Like it's ahead of its time. I could see it being. I mean, I think maybe that some of the production and the they like there wouldn't be like the stuff we picked out in this episode. I think some of that stuff would be a little tighter nowadays. Yeah. But like this is the kind of stuff I think that you're seeing like on Netflix and HBO Max now. Just that level of like emotion yeah. and what have you. So well, and it's definitely the kind of show that like I feel like, at least for me, it's the type of thing where I need to be more in the mood for it. Because like on a Friday night when I've been working all week and I'm tired and my brain hurts, like I don't want to watch something this emotionally <laughs> intense. I want to watch like guys grocery games or something where i don't have to think that hard and i can just watch people cook something like i don't want to so i feel like friday night's not even a great time slot for it in general because it's like you're tired you don't want to deal with that this is like i really want to watch something that's going to make me think and like i don't know Yeah. yeah that's just me though yeah we better wrap this up before Locke takes over the show i know so. Locke, is it dinner time yeah <laughs> Okay, well, we'll stop talking so you can eat dinner, okay? Okay, good boy. All right, good. All right. So thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And be sure to make sure I stop talking because I'm going to say this again <laughs> in the end credits. So yeah. you don't need thanks. to keep going. Thanks for supporting us. We appreciate your support. We hope you're enjoying it. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Oh, be sure to join us next Millennium Monday. I'm like, no, shut up, Nick. What are you doing? No, we're gonna talk. We're gonna say that in like five seconds. I know. I want to rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by the Agrarian. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday and episode 11, Weeds. And together, we'll try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is still, still out there. there.
me. Oh, what the hell was that? Something just. All right. Sorry, something just something just moved and touched me, and there's not supposed to be anything in the closet. Oh, uh, that's creepy. Okay, some sheets fell over. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. The sheets <laughs> stacked on the floor because our closet's just stuffed full of things, and so I totally. Um, but something moved and like touched my leg, and I'm like, um, that didn't feel like a living thing, but <laughs> still weird. Still weird. Still weird. Something moved and touched me, so I need to find out what that was. Okay. All right. All right. 